1: Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 9625kHz, that's on the 31 meter band if you are in Southern Africa. You can also stream us on channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spumele Lezondi. I'm with One Lentinti with and Neto Chimane. Your top stories. European Union Parliament calls on Uganda to drop charges against Bobby Wine. Banks expose ANC intervention in Gupta account closures. Horrific violence escalates further in Cameroon's Anglophone regions. In economic news, South African media and e-commerce group Nespers' a plan to spin off multi-choice will, feed, will free up cash for the unit to compete with a fast-growing Netflix and in sport 2019 Rugby World Cup kicks off in Tokyo tomorrow. on Lind news.
2: Thank you, Spoo. At least twenty-seven people have drowned and others are presumed dead after a riverboat capsized on a tributary on the Congo River in northern DRC. Witnesses say around sixty people, mainly traders and students, had been aboard the canoe-shaped craft. Locals blame operators for overloading a boat that was already in poor condition and then setting sail after duck. Authorities are searching for the boat owner who fled following the incident. The ensemble political party led by Moise Katumbi, Alliance of the DRC opposition parties, says they're optimistic the SADC member state will help resolve their political frustration back home. The group, with the support of the DRC diaspora in South Africa, handed over a memorandum of demand to the Angolan, Namibian and Zimbabwean embassy in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, seeking political intervention. They demand regional intervention in an attempt to force the DRC government to allow opposition leader Katumbi to contest the December elections in that country. The DRC government has denied him registration to take part in the election. The group spokesperson Bruno Katumpa says they need support from SADC.
3: We want to engage the SADC because there is an urgent need to pay attention to the crisis. DRC government has failed to organize the election twice. And we are not sure that uh, even the third time, which is this year, 23rd of uh, September, that will be done. So we are so concerned because it can degenerate into a big crisis and the conflict, which is going to affect the entire uh, region. So that to help uh, in this process, we need the SADC country to, uh, to, be, to be implicated.
2: Meanwhile, the group has criticized the International Criminal Court for sending a wrong message after it sentenced opposition leader Pierre Bemba to an effective 12-month imprisonment recently. He was accused of tampering with witnesses in a genocide-related case. Katumpa says they will assist Bemba to appeal the recent conviction and sentence imposed on him by the ICC.
3: You know, Mr. Bemba spent almost 10 years in prison. I don't think it is fair for him to now to be sentenced again for one year while he has done 10 years already in jail. So we think uh, uh, there is a room for an appeal and we are going to do so and we're hoping uh, for a good uh, outcome. Yes, we are, we are wishing for that. But we think that it is not fair for someone who spent already 10 years uh, in, at the ICC. So there is a chance that that sentencing will be put uh, set aside.
2: Thousands of residents of Syria's last major rebel bastion Idlib have headed home within 48 hours of the announcement of a deal to avoid a government offensive to retake it. According to Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, around 7,000 people have returned to their towns and villages since the announcement of the deal on Monday. The civil war in Syria has killed more than 360,000 people and displaced millions, more since it erupted with the brutal repression of anti-government protests in 2011. And lastly, South African Institute of Race Relations says the Constitutional Court's ruling on the use of cannabis has affirmed the right of South Africans to make their own decision. On Tuesday, the court announced the decriminalization of cannabis for private use, but says people may be arrested if they are suspected of being in possession for dealing purposes. In welcoming the judgment, the institute spokesperson, Marius Roots says people should be free to decide without interference from the state whether or not to use it in their own home.
4: This shows allowing people to use cannabis or dacha in the privacy of their
5: own home. Uh, shows that the court uh, trusts uh, South Africans as adults and people who can make decisions about their own lives. We need to trust South Africans to uh, use um, cannabis responsibly. We already, alcohol is already legal in this country and the uh, majority of South Africans aren't alcoholics. So I don't think uh, cannabis legalization will lead to uh, some kind of a dacha epidemic in the country.
2: Channel African News, I'm Onelene Tinti.
1: Thank you very much, Onelaida. Seventeen oh six Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest. Now, the European Union Parliament has appealed to the Ugandan government to drop treason charges against prominent uh, parliamentarian and musician Robert Kyagulanyi, popularly, popularly known as uh, internationally, internationally rather as Bobby Wine. In a statement, the European Union says it believes the charges are trumped up. The 34-year-old Wine is on his way to Uganda from the United States, where he underwent a specialised treatment for injuries he sustained when he was allegedly tortured by the authorities in the northern part of the country. Bobby Wine, together with 32 of his supporters, are alleged to have pelted stones at President Yoere Museveni's motorcade. In an exclusive interview with our correspondent James Shimanyula, Bobby Wine says Museveni has failed to fulfil promises he made of not staying long in power shortly after becoming the East African country's leader 32 years ago
6: the Ugandan authorities particularly our president hate the truth every time you tell him the truth every time you remind him of uh, his promises that he has uh, defaulted on he gets hungry and uh, recently together with his ministers uh, declared us terrorists and uh, they use brutal force on us. Not only me, but all Ugandans that have dared to stand up for the truth. All Ugandans that have dared to raise their voices. They have been brutally beaten. Some have been have sustained broken limbs. Some have been killed.
7: You spoke about the president failing to fulfill his promise. Are you talking about... The first five years after he had ruled, what did he say?
6: When President Museveni came to power, he said that Africa's problem are the leaders that overstay in power. And indeed, he promised that he will rule for only five years and return power to a civilian leadership. 32 years later, he does not want anybody to remind him about his promises. He's doing the exact thing that took him to fight. So much murder, so much senseless killing, so much corruption, so much sectarianism, so much tribalism. Uganda is, oh my God. Now, let's go to when you were locked up
7: by the authorities in Uganda. For how long were you locked up? And uh, were you eating? Were you given uh, water facilities um, fit for
6: a human uh, being? I was treated very inhumanly. First I was beaten and I was uh, handcuffed on both hands and legs. We have these uh, treason charges leveled
7: against you with others that are yet to come to court or have come to court. When you appeared in yeah. court, you looked frail. Your face was not the usual musicians' face or honorable members face. Are those treason charges still there or they've been dropped?
6: First of all, they charged me for illegal possession of guns and they brought two machine guns and 32 rounds of ammunition. Are you a soldier or do you have arms? I am not a soldier and uh, that explains why 10 days later the government dropped charges against me and they did not explain why. actually got information yesterday that the guns that they presented have since gone missing, and I was charged with treason. When
7: is the case coming up for hearing or mention? The case is coming out on the 1st of October. You have already told me that you sustained the injuries, but some people in Kampala close to the authorities are saying those who are just fake injuries and not real injuries.
6: It's not the first time for the government of Uganda to do something to torture its people, to brutalize its citizens and then later deny it. The same government put guns on me and said they found me with guns. The same government um told the nation that they had caught me with guns but later on retracted on their statement. They tortured another uh, article Shaban, who will never be able to walk again. It's not only me that they tortured, but like I said, they are shameless that they will do something and then later they will deny it. Finally, characterize the, the
7: Ugandan government. Is it a government that uh, conforms with the democracy that is exercised in uh, several
6: African countries? Uganda is uh, a dictatorship, an absolute military dictatorship. That poses like a democracy. Don't
7: you see you are a politician, you are a musician. You cannot call President Museveni's government dictatorship. He has been ruling very ably since he came from the forest. He has saved the people of Uganda from the bondage of Idamine and all other brutal attacks from uh, megalomaniac people that have been in Uganda. Don't, don't you give him a credit at any time?
6: All I know is that President Museveni liberated himself and not Ugandans the, the reasons that took him to the bush, he's doing the same thing and even worse. You can see in Uganda, we are faced with the worst human rights abuses where people are killed and no answer is given where people are brutalized, women and children. You saw recently when more than a hundred people were massacred by the army, mainly women and children. You You cannot say that's a democracy when nobody is allowed to say anything. We were attacked by the army on the floor of parliament and beaten and brutalized right on the floor of parliament. So when you call that a democracy I don't understand what you mean. Is there any moment Bobby Wine,
7: that you, being a musician and a Honorable Member of Parliament, can give credit to the Ugandan government of Museveni. Has it done something good? The Ugandan government
6: did very many good things between 1986 and 1996. But after that, it turned out to be much worse than the dictatorships that were there before.
1: There's prominent parliamentarian and musician Robert Kiagulani, popularly known as Bobby Wine in Uganda and internationally. He was talking to James Shimanyula. Netbank CEO Mike Brown says he did not feel pressured by South Africa's ruling National African, Cong- African National Congress or the ANC to reopen the bank accounts of controversial Gupta-linked companies during a meeting at Lutuli House in Johannesburg. Brown was appearing before the State Capture Commission of Inquiry underway in Parktown in Johannesburg. Like executives of other banks who have testified, Brown has cited the reputational risk caused by escalating media reports about the Gupta family as a reason for the bank to terminate their relationship. Brown says he was invited to the ANC headquarters by the party's economic transformation head, Enoch Godongwana, in April 2016 to explain the process of closing those bank accounts.
8: I did not leave that meeting feeling that I was placed under any pressure to reopen the Gupta accounts and in fact the meeting closed with me being thanked for providing information that was helpful in understanding and answering questions that the attendees get. So, I think in the first instance I regarded it as being quite a strange statement because I knew at that point in time, Nedbank had not made any public statements, given client confidentiality, around the closure of these accounts. But I I certainly assumed that there would be a conversation around accounts in general. I suppose I knew that in attending any of these meetings, I would not be able to speak about the Gupta accounts specifically. So therefore, I would only be able to provide general input into that meeting. So similar to the request of the meeting from the ANC, I debated uh, and spoke to colleagues internally about whether I should or should not attend, given some of the strange elements that you have recently alluded to. And again, I concluded that I should attend on the basis that I would not make any statements or references around the Gupta accounts specifically, but as an engaged corporate citizen and as a leader in the banking environment, it was important for me to make sure that I could input into these conversations my views around the bank's ability to close accounts, the processes that we follow generally, the legislative process, uh, to reference the JP Morgan report that we spoke about earlier, and to very specifically uh, point out that there was no collusion amongst the banks in this process. So, On balance, I felt that it was appropriate for me to attend. I also felt it would be disrespectful not to attend, but that I would make sure that the conversation was in that second area of the narrative and not the accounts in particular. So, I did regard it as strange. However, when I was given up front who the members of the IMC were likely to be, uh, one of those members was the Minister of Finance, who I thought would be the natural go-to person for matters to do with financial services so i i suppose presumed that I, I assumed he would be in attendance and felt perhaps that was just the most logistically easiest place to get the meeting done on that day
1: that is netbank ceo mike brown giving testimony before the state capture commission of inquiry in parkton <laughs> It is 1717 Central African time. Now the crisis in the English-speaking regions of Cameroon is reportedly developing into full armed insurgency with about 400 civilians having been killed this year in attacks between armed separatist groups and security forces. Pro-independence fighters have called for a total shutdown from September 20 to October 10 in a bid to completely frustrate efforts by the government to carry out elections in the troubled regions. Tens of thousands have fled to the Anglophone region into neighboring Nigeria, and hundreds of thousands are internally displaced. The West African country, or the Central African country, is heading to the polls on October 7, described as one of the most uncertain and dreaded presidential elections the country has witnessed. Our Cameroonian reporter, Moke reports. It is becoming very serious. It is a
4: serious Issue In the English-speaking regions of Cameroon, there's a mass exodus of the population running away from the fighting between the armed groups, the militias, the armed gangs, and the military, running away from the kidnappings, running away from the carnage, the carnage that's going on in the northwest and southwest regions. Now, you were talking about uh, the statistics from human rights organizations add that over 200,000 people according to the United nations have been dismissed these figures do not uh, are different I mean the figures are already updated because for the past two weeks thousands of people have been fleeing from the Indus regions to uh, several localities in the French speaking regions. Others are running to the bushes and others are running to Nigeria. The school year in Turkey started on September 3. Students go to the to school. On Sunday, armed gangs attack schools and then the parents have taken back thousands of their children. They have left the school and they have gone back home. They fighting is serious, the situation is serious, especially now that the armed gangs are dying. That new election will take place in the English, speaking with of Cameroon. They are saying that they have created a new country called Ambazonia. And they will never allow a foreign government to become an organized election. So the situation is serious and it's promising to become more difficult
10: if nothing is done. The crucial elections are going to be held next month, moki Has the elections governing body said anything in terms of the upcoming polls in the anglophone regions? It must be concerned about the latest developments. Has it said anything about the upcoming Elections,
4: the board here at the elections management body, who is called Ano Adams Edgar. I invited him yesterday to talk about it on our state television here. He is saying that they are just an elections management body and the count and the state for security. Since the state has assured him and the elections management body and that there's security, he accepts the security. But will the government, will the soldiers be able to be behind every citizen who is going to vote? What about those who are leaving? the rest of areas and people are where they cannot vote. Remember that in March, when the elections were taking place, some of the voters were kidnapped by the armed gangs who do not want elections to take place. So they are promises. The government is they're going to be we are assuring people who are, who are security that the people are saying that they are not seeing any assurance of anything security. They're not sure anything is going to happen. The governor of the South West the Delap A went around encouraging people not to leave where. So going 15 armed, 15 me, protecting me. So if the government is with 15 soldiers protecting him, what the population is saying that is a serious problem too. The problem does not say. the national body saying they are going to be election, but not everything are really going to the election. Now the voters are
10: escaping. Now. What is the position of uh, government with regards uh, to this uh, latest development, Moki? Is uh, government saying anything about these uh, tensions?
4: The president, are, the president of the Republic of Kanon told made it clear that he is not open to discuss the form of the state with anybody. That he is out to fight to make sure that the separatists are defeated. He says this dialogue, but the dialogue is the one that they're talking about how to lay down the arms. He says he's dialoguing with the armed group or the representatives and how they do lay down the arms. Then so the arms group will say, okay, you, the government, should lay down your own arms too. And the government says it cannot. It is a sovereign dead state and they cannot lay down arms because they are intimidated by a, group of, or by a group of fighters. The government is making it very, very clear. The armed separatists should lay down their guns. The armed separatists should leave the bushes. The armed separatists should surrender and handguns to the military, but they are still in the bushes. The government says it is not really to discuss the form of the state. That's for, uh, for that position. Ever since this crisis started, and it's not changing, the next time is changing.
10: Now, do we know how many people have been killed as a result of these attacks, Moki?
4: Now, the government with about three hundred. Those three hundred, according to the government, include about one hundred and thirty policemen and soldiers. But I don't tell you that we weekend goes this by without a bad group or a number of people have been killed and just found in the bushes. These figures they are giving here as. At, um, two months ago, when they said 300 people died, but people die every day. I want to quote some other human rights groups in Cameroon who, who are saying that if the country number of people have actually died since this crisis started, it should not be less than 700. The government says 300, some human rights groups say 400, others say 700, but every day, countries are discovered in the bushes.
1: And. Uh... That is our reporter Moki Kinziger, who was on the line from Yaoundé in Cameroon in conversation with uh, Channel Africa's Kumbero, It is 1723 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. On Twitter, we are on Channel Africa 1. You can also send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, that is, COSATU, has called on unions so that left to form a rival movement to the South African Federation of Trade Unions, SAFTU, to return. Saftor was formed following disagreements within Cosatu with now former union affiliates. This led to the movement to lose a a bleed in membership. Cosatu is holding its 13th National Congress, currently underway in Midrand, north of Johannesburg. Deliberations on the economy, the national health insurance and the land issue are among some of the issues being discussed at the Congress. Zingiswa Lossi, the first woman president of the trade federation has been welcomed she is the outgoing deputy president of the labor federation joining me now on the line is professor Lisiba Tifum. hello thank you very much for joining me prof
4: uh greetings to you and the listeners
1: right um uh, prof uh, can kosa to go back to the heydays of when lindsay Vavi was uh, was in charge
6: i don't think that will ever happen again.
4: Uh, even in the nature of politics, it's very unlikely that once people vote with their feet, they will come back. That's one. Number two, um, the reasons that led to Korsati walking away, have they changed? Have the circumstances changed to warrant that they can review their position? I don't think so. Um, so, if indeed it was as a, as a matter of principle, and most probably the principal one was, association, linkage, and fraternization with political parties. That's what killed Kosatu and I think that's what kosaju is still doing. There's nothing wrong with the president going there to address them, but precisely because at Nazareth, they backed uh, one candidate against another, and that they're still in an alliance, and they're therefore in co-government with the ruling party that they can respect they can expect to continue to bleed membership and effectively with the no prospect of staff to or some of his affiliate going back home, so to speak.
1: Uh, you don't think that the exit of Stumotlaminu will change things in any way?
4: Not at all. It's not about an individual. Look, we, it, it, was, it was quite easy and simplistic to say, once Jacob Zuma is gone, the rot will go away. The rot was systemic. And so is the problem of COSATU. It's not about the individual. In the main, and I'm saying, and as I said before, their fraternization with the ruling party, being in co-governance with the ruling party, makes it a contradiction in terms. Across the globe, labor doesn't go to bed with the ruling party.
1: Mm, um, and now there is a rival union made up of former members of COSATU. Um, uh, do we see that rival union rising and rising time and time again?
4: Well, it has, oh, the prospects for it to grow are, 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 are immense. One, people lost jobs. People walked away because they had a sense that they were pawns in on a political chessboard. People used them regardless of their plight and prospects of losing jobs. They would fight certain battles because they were aspiring for political office. And I'm saying, for as long as the leadership of Kofatu is seen to be using them as vehicle to assume positions in government and in, in both, as it has been the case, by the way, in the past 25 years, therefore it's very unlikely that those who have walked away would want to go back.
1: Mm, um, and uh, everyone at the moment is uh, celebrating the first female head Um, uh, should there be celebration
4: well I think there is good reason and I think um, it's quite symbolic and it might have a a ripple effect domino effect in other spaces kudos to to her and kudos to the women folk I think it will give impetus to, to the women folk being considered for other positions as well and I think in this instance, she's a worthy candidate because you also must not shy away from certain appointments made for wrong reasons simply because people are women. And those women too come back to say, I just don't want to be a token. I want to be worthy of the position I assume or I hold. Uh, and
1: now for Kosato to reshape itself and sort of rise again, what would they need to do?
4: The first thing is just walk away from uh, from the alliance. And remember, by the way, what was the alliance for or what are they allied against if you were to unpack the genesis of the word, right, or the meaning of the word alliance? They were allied against apartheid. Once it was gone, their relationship became fractious and problematic. And they just don't want to accept that it doesn't work. It's like uh, abused spouses refusing to walk away from the marriage. And I'm not saying, I'm merely by, by the way, I'm echoing what many FCAT members have said and uh, ultimately what are we. And indeed, yes, I hear, Baji would not agree with me, with my analysis. But when the time came, they won't up to say it cannot work. It cannot work. But it is a bit late, but nonetheless, it's not late indeed to do the right
1: thing. All right. Thank you very much, Professor. Hello. All right, Professor Lesibaud for there. He is a political analyst. It's now time for News Headlines. Here's on LNCNC.
2: At least 27 people have drowned and others there's a presumed dead after a riverboat capsized on a tributary on the of the Congo River in northern DRC. Zambian President Edgar Lungu fires a cabinet minister in charge of social welfare funds. And the President of the European Council, Donald Toss, asks, calls on European leaders to stop what he calls the migration blame game. Channel African News, I'm Onilin
1: It is 17.30 Central African time. Now, South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority says uh, they're investigating the possibility that Professor Sean Davison could have committed more cases of assisted suicide. The UWC academic has been granted bail of 20,000 rand in the Cape Town Magistrate's Court on a charge of premeditated murder. Berenice Moss reports.
11: Professor Sean Davison was arrested on Tuesday in connection with an alleged case of assisted suicide. The incident occurred in Seapoint in 2013, which led to the death of a 43-year-old doctor, Andrich Berger. 57-year-old Davison is the founder of Dignity SA, which advocates for the right to assisted dying. In 2011, Davison was sentenced to five months house arrest after he helped his 85-year-old terminally ill mother to die via assisted suicide. He had entered into a plea agreement with authorities in New Zealand. He returned to his wife and children in Cape Town a year later after serving his sentence. The NPA is now investigating possible other cases in which the academic could have been involved in. NPA spokesperson Eric Ntabazalila.
10: After the session seizure, we heard that there was uh, there are suspicions that he may have committed uh, other types of murders similar to this one we're charging him with. So we will um, try and get and go through investigate that, that what, what came out of that session seizure and, and be able to analyze it and then see what comes out of it.
11: An executive member of Dignity SA, Professor Willem Landman, says the law must take its course in the murder case against the founder of the organisation. Landmann says Davison is acting in his private capacity.
9: The organisation Dignity SA stands for the change in the law and all our actions have been aimed at achieving that end several court cases that have taken place and the ones that are pending. However, if individuals like Professor Davison decides to perform certain actions and if it's alleged that those actions are illegal, then the law must take its course.
11: The University of the Western Cape says it's acknowledged the arrest of one of its own professors and will be in contact with his legal representative, UWC spokesperson Professor Cheryl Africa.
2: The university notes what it's And we will be making contact with Professor Davison's attorneys as well as with his family.
11: Davison intends pleading not guilty to a charge of murder. The case has been postponed to the 16th of November. I'm Berenice Moss in Cape Town.
10: Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700 hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700 hours Central African Time show. The 1900 hours Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective.
1: 1734 Central African time. Some South Africans have been celebrating news that they can freely get high in the comforts of their own homes without being arrested. The Constitutional Court ruled yesterday that the ban on the private use and cultivation of marijuana or DACA is unconstitutional. The African Democratic Change has been actively advocating for the legalization of cannabis for some time now. The party says it is a myth that legalization of marijuana would lead to increased consumption by youth and links to crime should be debunked. More from Secretary-General Eddick, Nathaniel Denson-Abricknell.
5: I would definitely say it's about time, considering that South Africa and Africa as a whole has had over 700 years of recreational and traditional and medicinal uses of cannabis. Therefore, these laws that were passed in South Africa during apartheid and during the uh, New Democratic Dispensation in 1994, to speak more to the international perspective of the drug, never really took into account an African perspective and use of the herb itself. As much as we agree we're very excited about this monumental judgment, we generally don't feel that this is enough. We also believe that the concourse in itself has caused a lot of unnecessary problems for South Africans who utilize cannabis because because of the way that the the judgment has been worded but also the fact that they've neglected to speak to how these individuals will get access to the the drug itself because the retailing of cannabis is still illegal and that in itself has created a massive grey area for users that was one of the questions that i was going to ask you about the legal requirements for the users around this ruling But now what does the legalization mean for those who have been smoking it already in the privacy of their own homes? So effectively, they can continue utilizing it freely. However, there is uh, there is one catch here. In terms of the, the ruling that was passed yesterday, the Concord made it very clear that we're not going to mandate for a prescribed amount that an individual can hold at home. Effectively, what they've done is they've created a space where a officer who can enter your premises and they can determine themselves whether or not the amount that you have is for your own consumption or individuals living on the property Consumption, or and the the supply to the cultivation aspect of it as well, but also um, if they can determine whether their quantity is for retail for dealing purposes. So effectively, what that means is because there's very little research done by the concord into the usage of cannabis, someone might feel that. They need 50 grams because that's what what they need for their consumption. Where an officer entering your home could say that's too much. And this will allow for unnecessary wastage of state resources where you will be arrested. You will have to go uh, appear in front of a court. So another massive gray area that's been created because of this judgment. And personally, I feel that the Concord didn't take into account a lot of the situations around this. And for you to go and purchase, whether it be seeds or the plant itself, you're still a criminal. So a very pointless ruling without fully legalizing cannabis in South Africa. Now, you believe that the legalization of the cannabis will also boost job creation and the economy. Absolutely. Currently at the moment there is over 2 billion US dollars worth of trade taking place in cannabis in South Africa. And the, the truth is that there is nothing stopping the South African government bringing that into the mainstream economy. And this illusion that cannabis itself is a gateway drug is only because it is unregulated. So the same thing happened during the uh, prohibition of alcohol in America and this is something that we fail to take into consideration where obviously you create a space where dealers and during uh, speaking more to the prohibition of alcohol, gangsters ran that particular industry. So yes, people that are, that uh, were looking for cannabis or alcohol are exposed to individuals that will expose them to other substances as well. So it's a conversation that actually needs to be uh, they had properly. Five minutes will never be able to really allow for this type of conversation. But But as the African Democratic change, we are going to be championing the full legalization in Parliament next year. And it's something that really is close to our organization because for someone who has cancer, the only substance that really assists them is the use of cannabis oil. And those individuals are not criminals and they shouldn't be made to feel like criminals. And another problem that was caused yesterday with the ruling is that there is no retrospective implementation of this law. So people who have been arrested and are currently awaiting trial, there's no legal stance to say that they are now going to be free to go and have their their charges dropped. So again, a whole new class action needs to be taken against the state to deal with their current situation and those who are currently facing conviction due to possession and utilization at home. Obviously, this sort of... A situation can't really apply to dealers who have been arrested. Now, you've spoken about the issue of the drugs, you know, and being a gateway drug, but we mm-hmm. have such a high level of drug abuse currently in South Africa. Could this not just add to it? Not at all. If you look at the statistics, I mean, more people die on a daily basis from alcohol abuse than they are from cannabis an entire year. And I mean, if we look at this, the cigarette industry, the alcohol industry. I think we've got to uh, remove this perception that cannabis is a drug. It's not a drug, the sense of a cocaine or ecstasy, where those are... Actual drugs and cannabis and its its, uh, cousin hemp has a lot of practical implications that could be brought into our economy. We keep hiding behind this 1920s perception that cannabis is a drug. And that's a mindset change that needs to take place in South Africa, and it's going to come down to education. And it's it's conversations that we have to have. We keep running away from these conversations. We run away from sex education in school. It's conversations that need to be had now, and we need to be a lot more aggressive in how we communicate these myths around the, the cannabis itself.
1: Nathaniel Danton-Bricknell is the Secretary General at South Africa's African Democratic Change, talking to Tracy Bourmgaard. The 2018 Africa Aerospace and Defence Exhibition has officially opened in Pretoria. The exhibition, which is staged every two years, attracts exhibitors in defence technology and innovation from across the world and showcases the capabilities of armed forces. The theme for this year's exhibition is Unlocking Africa's Aerospace and Defence Potential. According to Leon Dillman, Chief Executive of a host partner, Commercial Aviation Association Southern Africa, this year's exhibition will be more exciting.
9: Just to give you some background in terms of this event, we've been doing this since the year 2000. Um, most of them hosted here in the city of Tuane at Air Force Base Water And um, For this event, we've got three trade days and then two public days. Um, for the three trade days, we try to do business-to-business events. And then we've got about over, the, over 500 exhibitors that's exhibiting at this event and um, they then try to um, promote, market and sell their products into the rest of Africa um, and the rest of the world. So it provides a platform for these these companies to showcase their products and also the opportunity to do a bit of B&B on the side. And um, for the um, public days we do host an air show on both the Saturday and the Sunday and we are basically showcasing everything we've got and basically what's available to us to the public and um, flying everything anything from a griffin to a microlite at the that specific event Um, and yes we're expecting approximately 80,000 public visitors on the Saturday and Sunday and around about 40,000 people for the trade days on the Wednesday Thursday and then the Friday we've also got various um, visiting foreign delegations from a variety of countries and um, we started today with the the president of the country actually opened the event and we're looking ahead for the next um, few days and hopefully we'll make it a a success how will uh... This
10: exhibition uh, unlock opportunities for the South African defense industry and the aerospace sector in general?
9: Okay, in general, because these um, or more than 500 companies get the opportunities to showcase their products and you get all the foreigners, 104 trades visiting country um, in the vicinity of about 30,000 people from foreign countries coming to visit the B2B part, they give the opportunity um, to see these products, Might they might get interested in this products, and then through that you get a lot of business deals in future, and of course the opportunity for South African countries then to export these products services to Africa and the rest of the world.
10: I suppose equally important uh, Mr. Dalman is uh, the youth development program which has been formed uh, to interactively expose school learners to the aviation and defense sector with a view to consider careers in uh, this high technology environment. Tell us a little bit more about uh, this youth initiative as well.
9: Okay what we're trying to do is the youth development program and we're trying to specifically get children who's doing um, very good at maths and science to get them through and then who stays in rural areas to get them through to this um, aerospace and defense exhibition and we make them aware of all the career opportunities available specifically in aerospace and and defense and we do run them through a rotation program where they basically do a bit of simulation training. They will look at the fence opportunities and what the fence force is doing. We do a bit of robotics of things. And we get various... Speakers that actually try to um, engage with them and to promote the aviation and defense industry for them to uh, maybe decide to to, um, get into a career of either in aerospace or defense.
10: Talk to us about how this exhibition has evolved over the years. Ten years now that this event has been held, how has it evolved over the years?
9: Yes, um, thank you for that question. Um, In terms of the evolution of this event, as I've indicated, we started with the first Africa Aerospace and Defense Exhibition in the year 2000. We had a few of them here in this in, in Suane, we moved it down to Acercourt and the Cape as well. But we, sh- we saw a constant growth in terms of the exhibitors, the amount of aircraft we get at the event, um, and also in terms of the trained visitors and the public attending the event. So, yes, if you look at the full picture, we've been growing from a, an exhibition with about 200 ex- exhibitors to more than 500 specifically for this year.
1: Leon Dillman is the Chief Executive Officer of the Commercial Aviation Association, Southern Africa, talking to Kumbero Mujerere.
9: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa.
1: It is 1746 years. With your economic news.
12: Good evening, thanks as Pomelele Egypt's uh, Suez Canal revenues rose to 502.2 million US dollars in August, up 60.7% from the same period last year. The canal is the fastest shipping route between Europe and Asia and one of the, con- uh, the government's main sources of foreign currency. And Kenya's finance minister has cut the government spending budget by 547 million US dollars in the fiscal year from last June. The government is facing a tough balancing act after public outcry over a new 16% value-added tax on all petroleum products forced President Uhuru Kenyatta to reduce it by half. Parliament will consider the reduced budget and Kenyatta's VAT proposal during a special seating on Thursday. And Zambia's kwacha lost more than a percent on Wednesday, hit by investor worries about the size of the nation's debt, and an aid freeze by Britain and Finland over suspicion that social welfare funds may have been misused. The currency of Africa's second biggest copper producer fell as much as 1.6% to 11.18 kwacha per US dollar on Wednesday from a close of 11 kwacha per dollar on Tuesday. Zambia's external debt rose to $9.37 billion by the end of June from $8.7 billion in December. NetBank CEO Mike Brown says he did not feel pressured by South Africa's ruling ANC to reopen the Gupta bank accounts during a meeting at the party's headquarters in Johannesburg. Brown appeared before the State Capture Commission of Inquiry in Johannesburg. Like executives of other banks who have testified, Brown cited a reputational risk caused by escalating media reports about the Gupta family as reason for the bank to terminate their relationship. Brown says he was invited to the ANC headquarters by the party's economic transformation head, Inok Godongwane, in April of 2016 to discuss bank disclosures.
8: In my discussions, I made it very clear that I could not talk about matters related specifically to the Gupta-related accounts. But what I felt was important was that I spoke about the legal framework in general around the closure of bank accounts. I did not leave that meeting feeling that I was placed under any pressure to reopen the Gupta accounts. And in fact, the meeting closed with me being thanked for providing information that was helpful
12: South African private hospital group Life Healthcare says it will sell its entire 49.7% stake in Max Healthcare to a global investment firm for $293 million in order to focus on its operations elsewhere. The company will initially use the net disposal process to settle debt as well as to invest in growth opportunities in its core market. Financial indicators, uh, the dollar trading at 10.69, Botswana Pula, 10.82, Zambian and Guache. BRICS currencies, 4.13, Brazilian real, 6.766, 6, Russian ruble, 7.254, Indian rupee, 6.86, Chinese yuan and 14.88, South African rand. Commodities gold, $1,200, uh, platinum, uh, $815 per five ounce, Brent crude oil at $78.98 per barrel. That's your economics news.
1: Thanks, Wissani. It is now time for Sports News with Neto Chemani.
13: With the latest Channel Africa Sports News at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Starting off with football news. The South African under-17 women's national team coach, Simpiwe Lulu is looking forward to the tour in Spain. The team will play against two La Liga junior teams, Levante under-17 and Valencia under-20 team. Bantuana will depart tomorrow and return to South Africa on the 29th of this month.
0: Um, We're obviously going to be playing against two teams that play in the La Liga and in the First Division, the um, Levante and Valencia. Um, obviously, um, then it means they have more exposure. They they play at the highest competition club level obviously but I'm sure they have players that are competing in the national teams as well because they're under 17s and under 20 teams that will be up against so we are expecting structure we are expecting uh, quick football um, a bit of skill because I mean in the under 20 Spain made it to the final
13: the team was in camp for more than a week preparing for the tour and the forthcoming FIFA World Cup in Uruguay later this year good to say so the camp went well
0: um I think since we've assembled um we've obviously trimmed the squad down um to a a number that's gonna travel to Spain um obviously four five of our players our regular players are not in camp, so we try to fill up in those positions because it's key positions as well but uh, with what we have right now we are trying to bring combinations together and you know we're always struggling with fitness so it's almost like you're starting from scratch in terms of that
13: the trip was made possible by the relationship between the south african football association and the popular la liga Lulu wants her team to have a certain identity and play possession football.
0: We we're very short, mm. um, in general, and I think uh, for me, I try to emphasize that they keep the ball as much as mm. possible. You know, um, we've got skill in our midfield more than anything. Our wingers are straightforward wingers, you mm. know. So, our football is not uh, complicated. You know, we just keep the ball, and when the time is right, we hit you on the counter mm. as well. You know, so we're that type of team that absorbs pressure. When the time is right, we are able to unleash. And obviously, um, my aim is always to have those key players in those different Mm -hmm. moments. You know, so... It's difficult to have an identity completely in the national teams because you have different players coming in and out because you select players by performance and if they're consistent as well. So there's more teaching in the youth structures compared to when you're in a club or in a Banyana for example, you know, because these are young ones, they forget, you know, so you take that into consideration.
13: On to Rugby News. Twelve venues stretching the length of Japan, from Hokkaido in the north to Fukuoka on the western tip of the country, will host games at the 2019 Japan Rugby World Cup, which kicks off on September 20th in Tokyo. Tokyo Stadium will host the opening ceremony and first match between the hosts Japan and Russia, whilst the nearby 72,000-capacity Yokohama International Stadium, which also hosted the 2002 Soccer World Cup Final, will stage both the semifinals and final this time around. Japan 2019 is using many other stadiums that hosted matches during Soccer's showpiece event 16 years ago including Saitama Stadium, the Sapporo Dome. She Suzuka Stadium and Oita Stadium. The only stadium specifically built for the 2019 Rugby World Cup is the Unosumai Memorial Stadium in Kamaishi, a town in Luarte Prefecture devastated by the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. Kamaishi will host two matches, including Fiji against Uruguay. On to tennis news. Japan's Naomi Osaka has beaten Dominika Sibulkova 6-2, 6-1 at the Pan Pacific Open in Tokyo, her first match since winning the U.S. Open. The 20-year-old beat Serena Williams to win her first Grand Slam earlier this month, a victory overshadowed by Williams' outburst at the umpire. The third seed raced to victory in 59 minutes against Slovakia's Sibulkova. She will play either Barbara Strykova of the Czech Republic or Estonia's Annette Kontaveit in the quarterfinals. And finally, an Australian Open line judge has hit out at the former world number one Serena Williams following her US Open outburst. In a much-publicized meltdown in this year's US Open final, Williams called chair umpire Carlos Ramos a liar and a thief, which eventually led to her third violation and being penalized again. However, Ramos is not the only official to fill the wrath of losing Williams. Just ask Shino Churubuchi. This is Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, Amneto am Neto and Eto'o
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: It is 1756 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. European Union Parliament calls on Uganda to drop charges against the Bobby Wine. Banks expose ANC intervention in crypto account closures. Horrific violence escalates further in Cameroon's Anglophone regions. With that, we wrap up Africa Digest for this hour for myself. Pomela Lezondi producer Ronald Apiri, cynical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you very much for listening.